I would invite you to join with me in turning in your Bibles to Ephesians 4 and verses 1 through 6 as together we take a look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, continue on in our reading of it. And while you're doing that, uh, let me begin. As well. Yes, by turning on my mic. <laughs> and as soon as I've done that, let me begin by uh, rather odd means. Uh, I want to begin by apologizing. Um, in front of you at the moment in these verses, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, is one of the most important sections uh, in Scripture. One of those beautiful sections in Scripture as well. Some of the most exalted language speaking of our oneness in Christ, explaining the unity of the church, how it's achieved, how it's Christ's purpose to create all of this. And I need to apologize because I completely spent myself in the morning sermon. I mean, I, I, I preached myself out. So um, it's like this. There is all the ingredients, or there are rather, all the ingredients for a beautiful meal in front of us. Everything is, is chopped up and, and prepared and all of, the, all of the, the most sumptuous spices and so on are there. And uh, the chef is like, I can maybe make a salad. Um, so uh, I, I'm not sure I can. I, I, no, I am sure I will not be able to do justice to this. But I'm going to pray that the Lord would help me and that we would get something, some crumbs perhaps from the table that will help us uh, as we walk together. Let's go before the Lord. God, our Father, I do confess my inadequacy at the moment and my inability to, uh, to speak, to, uh, to summarize what it is that you have said through your Apostle Paul. These things are wondrous, amazing, abundantly above anything that we could ever understand in its fullness. We know that when we get to heaven, we will have some idea of the love of Christ and the amazing work that you have been doing since before the creation. But now I pray, Lord, that we would have an idea of what Paul calls our calling, our vocation, and how it is to be one in Christ, one together as well, one in his body. Help me uh, to give some sense of that and help me, uh, oh Lord, not to divide your word aright. Let me say nothing that goes against your word. Let me not, not jumble these things up and confuse your people. May they know your love and your plan for them. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. amen. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What is the true and proper ground of Christian unity? What is it that unites us? What is it that makes us one? Many people have tried to come up with uh, things to make the church one. Uh, a shared affinity. We like the same things. Uh, nationality. We all come from the same nation. Language. We speak the same language. We have the same dialect. Music tastes. We like the same kind of music. We like to sing the same tunes. We like to dance the same dances, perhaps. 
or ethnic background. We all look roughly the same. Demographics, we, we all have basically the same income, the same kind of trades and profession and so on. Uh, political beliefs, we roughly vote the same way and feel the same uh, way about economics and, and social issues and so on. Or perhaps even family. In many areas, a church, especially in the RP, a church is based on a number of family affinities. In some cases, you have families that came over from Scotland, settled in the same area, and their descendants, regardless of whether they like each other much, have been worshiping together for literally generations. All of these things have been used to create a sense of unity within the church. But that is not what Paul says unifies us truly. None of these things are the ground of our oneness or our unity. In fact, in many senses, those things that I just mentioned, affinity, music tastes, ethnic background, political beliefs, and so on, they actually form the grounds for division within the body of Christ. They actually often form the grounds for dividing one believer from another, rebuilding, as it were, the middle wall of separation that Paul strove at length in Ephesians chapter 2 to show us that Christ had destroyed. So, for instance, if we were to talk about ethnic unity as the basis for our oneness in the church, in the church in Ephesus, well, that wouldn't work at all. You had Greek believers... You had Romans who had served in the Roman army, who had settled in the area. You had also a number of Jews, all of them from very different backgrounds, and all of whom would be potentially hostile to one another if we were talking about simply ethnic unity within the church. That would form no basis for unity whatsoever. Different languages, different dialects, even in a cosmopolitan city like that. No, the differences were things that couldn't be overcome simply by saying, well, this person is kind of like me in their life. And also, I mean, demographics, we're talking about a church that was made up in many cases, you would have officials, you would have shopkeepers, you would have masters, you would have street cleaners, you would have slaves, all of them coming from incredibly varied and diverse demographic backgrounds. Certainly the, the, the street cleaner couldn't say to the official, yes, we, we meet together all the time. They would meet each other in public only in passing on the street as one pushed a broom and the other rode in his chariot and so on. So that would not form any sort of shared experience, common ground. No, Paul says that our oneness is founded in something far beyond ourselves, far beyond our, our jobs here on earth, far beyond language, far beyond any of the external differences, skin color, whatever you choose to name. He says something miraculous is what makes us one. And it's something that the Lord himself is doing, something that the Lord is building. He is making us into one holy temple through his redemptive work. And that has been, and this is what I hope you see Paul has been eager to tell us from the very beginning of Ephesians. That's been his emphasis from the very beginning. God has, before he even created the earth, his intention was to make one holy, worshiping people united to him by faith, growing together in oneness and growing up towards perfect 
communion, a communion we can't even understand here on earth. We, we have some forms of unity here. Obviously, we have unity in teams, unity in units, unity in, in corporations, and we have even the greatest unity possible. There's that unity between parent and child. That's one unity, and then the even higher unity between husband and wife. But what Paul is telling us is the unity that we have in Christ within the church is beyond that by such a measure that we can't even understand it. Jesus pointed out that in heaven we're no longer married because our communion is so much better than that. We are a people who have been truly made one with our God and one with another. Now, Paul, you'll note as he was writing here in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord, he begins that way. Now, whenever you see, therefore, you, this is the awful old saying, whenever you see, therefore, in the scripture, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? Yeah, okay. Um, because therefore is actually an important transition. In Paul's epistles, uh, therefore is usually a turning point, a crux between the indicatives and the imperatives between the credenda, sorry, credenda and the agenda. What does that mean? Okay, well, it's where he transitions from teaching, giving you the background, giving you the basis for your faith, the things that are necessary to be known for salvation to the, okay, what do you do with these things? How do you live them out? What should you be doing with the knowledge that you have? How should that affect you? And that's exactly what's happening in Ephesians 4. He has talked about God's working in redemption from before the very beginning. How God purposed in Christ to bring us together. The Father electing and then the Son entering into the world according to that great covenant of redemption. And laying down his life for our sakes. The Son redeeming at the highest possible cost. And then the Spirit beginning that work of applying the redemption, gathering all into one, indwelling believers, unifying them. He tells us that that working has been done. Therefore, it should be something that the world sees in us. The church should be profoundly different, not because we're trying to act different, not because we dress differently like the Amish perhaps, but the world should see a difference in us because of the way that we act naturally, the way that we live. We should be literally a peculiar people, peculiar in the sense of set apart and different from the rest of the world, but peculiar in that we don't act like the world, we don't speak like the world. Our words should be seasoned with salt. Our intention in speaking, for instance, should be to edify. Paul is going to make that point in Ephesians. You guys should speak differently from the people around you. And I know in some settings that's very difficult. In the army, there's one four-letter word that seems to fill in for every verb, adverb, noun, and so on uh, that's ever necessary. And I know it's very hard, but it should be the case that the Christian buffer kind of, yeah, no, I'm not going to use that word. And find other things to say that are more edifying, that are more building up. And not because we have to strain at this kind of stuff. Not because somebody's, we think of, you know, it's like the slave with the master watching over them. But because we want to glorify God with our speech. We want to please our father. As a child swearing in front of his parents gets a stern look, or should at least get a stern look, and then feel sorry 
because they know that they have, they've hurt their parents' heart in some sense. So too, when we swear, when we speak filthily, it should be something that hurts our hearts because we know it goes against our very nature and against our Father's will for us. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. A, a difference of life should be part of us. Now, Paul, you see, he speaks of himself as the prisoner of the Lord. Note that he says he's the prisoner of the Lord. I've made this point before. He's not the prisoner of the Romans. He understands that it's the Lord's doing that he is where he is. And he is in chains, but he doesn't consider his bonds to be ashamed. The world would. You know, when somebody gets thrown in jail, or it used to be at least, it was a shame. It was something, you know, that people didn't want to talk about. Oh, yeah, Uncle Fred is in, uh, he's in prison. You know, that was something that, that people looked down on. But Paul doesn't see this as a shame or a dishonor at all. He sees it rather as a mark, a token of the way that the Lord is blessing him. Theodoret said, what the world counted ignominy, he counts the highest honor and he glories in his bonds for Christ more than a king in his diadem, that is his crown. We see that in the way that the apostles responded in Acts chapter five. You remember the uh, Sanhedrin, the ruling assembly of the Jews had told them to stop preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had refused to do so. So they deliberated. They'd considered killing them, but in the end they determined that they were simply going to beat them. And so they beat them cruelly. They beat them with rods, leaving many stripes on their backs. But we don't read, they went out grumbling and very upset that they'd been so heavily shamed. No, what we read in Acts 41 is, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so he says, this is my calling. This is what I've been called to. I'm in the place I'm supposed to be. It's amazing when you think that Paul could say, I'm in a Roman prison for Christ's sake, but I'm where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I know this is his will for me. That's belief in the sovereignty of God. And what he says is, I beseech you, therefore, because of your calling. Your vocation, every Christian, note this, has a calling from God. Every Christian has his life plotted out for him. The good works we read of in Ephesians 2 that he has given you to do. Those are the things that we are called to do. They're part of our calling, part of the grace that we've been given there. And we're supposed to be living out that vocation joyfully in a conscious enjoyment of, of all of the, the privileges that Paul has said we obtain. Not because we are so good, but because God was so gracious and so loving to us. Hodge puts it beautifully. I love the way he says this. He says, this vocation was to sonship. This includes three things, holiness, exaltation, and unity. They were called to be conformed to the image of Christ, to share in his exaltation and glory, and to constitute one family as all are the children of God. So what should our calling result in? What should it look like? Well, we should look like one family that has a common aim, a common theme, a common desire. Uh, we should have a mere manner of expressing ourselves that is along the same lines. We should have common goals, common desires. We should be characterized. When you come into our family, it shouldn't be a family that's that, you know, it could be the, the topic of a, of a 1970s or 80s sitcom. It shouldn't be completely disordered or dysfunctional. 
It should be that it's characterized by holiness and humility and forbearance, long-suffering, and above all, brotherly love again and again. You can't escape this away. Paul and John and Peter, all of them emphasize love one another, love one another, love one another. The bond of love should be what unites us, not common shared goals, political beliefs, sports teams, that kind of stuff, but love for one another in Christ. And so he mentions these virtues that the Holy Spirit should be producing in us. One of the first he mentions is humility. It should never be the case that Christians, particularly Calvinists, who believe in the sovereignty of God, I mean, the first thing that we confess is, hey, I'm not worthy of anything that I've obtained from God. Every part of my salvation was due to him. What did I contribute to my salvation? Sin. I'm the problem. He's the solution. And therefore, this should breed within us a spirit of deep humility. We were in the deepest, darkest dungeons. We were sunk deep in the mire. And he brought us up out of it. And he didn't just set us on the side and say, now clean yourself up and and, and go do something worthwhile. No, no, what does he do? He exalts us. He takes us from the deepest nadir to the highest pinnacle. He brings us to the highest point possible, sons of God. This is a completely inconceivable elevation that we've been given. And what should it do? It shouldn't puff us up as though we had done this. It shouldn't be like Caesar riding in his Gallic wars, and then I did this, and then I did that, and, you know, blowing his trumpet continuously. It should be rather like John Bunyan writing in Pilgrim's Progress and in the proceedings. And, and then as Christian talks about the way that the Lord took him an unworthy sinner and made him into a recipient of such grace. It should produce this profound humility within us when we recognize that our elevation is all due to him. And it should therefore give us a lowliness of mind. We should think lowly thoughts of ourselves. Who should we think great thoughts of? God. He's the one. When we do our boasting, we should be boasting in God. And we should be treating others as more important than ourselves. Do you know it used to be in society there were ways, cues, that you could, you could show people that you had a loneliness of mind and the way that you, um, you showed them respect and you exalted them more highly. They were actually, sometimes they were famed, admittedly, but they were built in society because there was this common thread that Christians should be humbling themselves. So, for instance, when somebody, you were walking towards a door and there was somebody behind you, what did you do? You opened the door for them and you stood aside. When a lady walked into the room, what did you do? You stood up. When an elder walked into the room, what did you do? You stood up. When you were going out to the carriage... In those days before the horseless carriage came in, these modern newfangled innovations and so on, you used to, for instance, you would walk on the outside of the curb as all the other carriages and things were coming by. Why? So that the man would get all of the mud and the, the garbage. And before that, when they were emptying chamber pots, he would be the one who would hit the uh, hit rather than her. You exalted others. You put them first as a way of life. And believe it or not, parents training their children to do that kind of thing, what were they doing? They were saying, treat others better than yourself. Treat the least of these. If they're weaker, exalt them. We don't do that anymore, do we? 
The sad thing is, the pathetic thing is, we train our children for narcissism. What do we put on the back of our chariots? My child isn't any student and better than yours and everybody else's. And I have 58 fur babies and blah, you know, it's all of this ridiculous, narcissistic garbage on the back of our... Nobody is training anybody for humility anymore. And it shows. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times. No offense. I've had doors closed in my faces by kids. Or I've had people, you know, children come up to me and address me by my first name. I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. But these things seem small, but it's something that should flow out of our soul. We should just put others ahead of ourselves. When somebody tells us that they have achieved something good, something wonderful has had in their life, uh, happened in their life, it shouldn't be the case. I envy you. How dare you get that thing? No, we should be glad for them. Brother, sister, that's wonderful news. I'm going to pray and thank God for that. Now, we need to remember this is very different. This humility of heart is very different from false humility. Those of you who have read the uh, novel David Copperfield will be familiar with the, um, the character, the famous character of Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep was a man who affected humility. Oh, I'm the most humble man on earth, am I? You know, that, uh, that kind of thing. He was obsequious. He was unctuous. He was completely insincere. He was a hypocrite. Oh, no, I'm not worthy of any of these things. Meanwhile, thinking all the time, I am actually more worthy than all of you. And trying to use that false humility as a way of ingratiating himself so that he could get what he wanted. He was defrauding his employer the whole time, we find out in the novel. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a, a false humility. And that, that really becomes, and people detect it. And it really is off-putting, isn't it? When, when you realize somebody's always saying, oh no, I'm not worthy. By which they're saying, oh yes, I am. <laughs> you know? That kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about true humility that comes from understanding the difference between Christ and us and what he has done for us and where we really would be without him. Once we remember where we were when he found us, it should bring us back down to size. God should be big. We should be small. Another thing that he speaks of here is long-suffering. This is something that we're called to. Long-suffering is, is a patient disposition that causes us to suppress our anger. So that when somebody offends us, somebody does something mean to us, we don't respond, uh, you know, oh, I can't stand that person, they're always, ah! you know. We take injuries lightly. We forget what people have done to us that was evil. And we remember when bad things happen to us that the bad thing that's happened in our life, it still came to us from a loving God and therefore it was designed for our good. And it was part of that process, if we're in Christ, of chastening and purifying us. Every bad thing that's ever happened in your life, Christian, if you are part of the body of Christ, was designed to conform you to the image of Jesus. Amen. And did you know, as C.S. Lewis put it so very well, he said, yes, you will experience pain at times in this process, but it is as the master sculptor is removing the parts of us that don't resemble his son. 
And that's a hard process sometimes. So we suppress our anger. We remember what Christ has endured, what he endured from his apostles walking with these, let's face it, 12 idiots who are constantly arguing about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom and misunderstanding everything. Oh, it's because we didn't bring bread that you're talking about the leaven of the... Ah, no, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, I've had it with you, and they're all gone. <laughs> no, he endured. He endured again and again. And then with you, what has he done? He has endured. He has forgiven. He has loved you. He has exalted you far beyond anything that you ever could have deserved. And therefore, how should you treat others? Patiently, with long-suffering. Christ should be your model. And what will those virtues, when you find them in the church, what do they produce? They produce the bond of peace. The peace that results from that love, that humility, that meekness, that mutual forbearance. And it is essential. It is absolutely essential to our union and our communion. And the, if you really want to get rid of that peace, then stir up pride within the church. Think high thoughts of yourself. Think, I am worthy of these things. Hatred and pride will cause the spirit to withdraw from the body. And then you will have that awful situation where you have the prideful preacher, the prideful elders, the prideful deacons, the prideful members, and everybody at war because they're all seeking to build their own kingdom instead of striving together in the unity of peace to build the kingdom of God within that setting. All of this should produce unity, a unity that arises from our oneness. And then he goes through the, the various parts of, of our oneness. He says we are one body. What does he mean by that? We are one mystical body in Christ. Christ the head, we the members, all of us in him. We being many are one body in Christ. And every one of us, we are told, are members one of another. And this goes beyond just, you know, the, the, the congregation, beyond the denomination. It encompasses all Christians, all believers in the world. And we're talking about, obviously here, when we're talking about the one body, we're talking about the, the invisible body. All those who are elect and, and spirit-filled, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the same body. The body is not one outward visible society. It's the spiritual body of Christ. Now, some people have said, well, isn't the oneness of the body broken up by all of these denominations? Isn't it ruined? Shouldn't we all have one unified body? Shouldn't we set aside? Okay, you believe this about baptism. We believe that about baptism. You believe this about church government. We believe that about church government. Let's just have done with it. We'll forget all of those things. We're going to say no creed but Christ. And we're all going to be one unified body. And we'll sing Kumbaya and all get along. And just forget about every difference that we have. That's not unity. That's not what's being spoken of here. It is better actually to separate for the sake of the truth and have two different bodies in one sense, although not really one body. You'll have two different visible churches, but one really invisible church headed for heaven. I hope you understand what I'm about to say. A.R. Fawcett wrote these words. He said... There is more real unity where both go to heaven under different names, let's say Baptist and Presbyterian, than when the same name, one goes to heaven and the other to hell. Truth is the first thing. Those who reach it will at last reach unity because truth is one. While those who seek unity is the first thing may purchase it at the sacrifice of truth and so of the soul itself. We cannot sacrifice the truth of the gospel for the sake of unity. 
And too many churches have tried to do it. That's what's killing our previous denomination, the PCA, right now. Unity at the sake of truth and conformity with the world. Now, one body, but we're also one spirit. That doesn't mean we have one heart, we have one set of emotions and so on. Uh, it's, it's not a unanimity of feeling. We all, we're all on the same page all the same time. Uh, in fact, that kind of unanimity is never going to happen really here on earth. But it means we have one spirit dwelling within us. And the spirit that's being spoken of here is the Holy Spirit. Uh, we often use the phrase, don't we, born-again believer. There really is no such thing as a born-again believer because all believers are by nature born again. It's a, it's a redundancy. If you're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means you've been infilled by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, and thus you've been brought to faith. We have one spirit dwelling within us and animating us, giving us that, that desire for the same things, changing our will, setting us in a new direction, giving us a new purpose as a group. The Holy Spirit is that, that common purpose that gives us a, a true unity. Uh, and while, as I said, outward uniformity is unattainable here, we are gradually having our minds changed, conformed made like that of Christ and our will changed, made willing to do what the Lord commands. That's the spirit within us. And therefore we have one hope. What does that mean? Well, we have one high destiny, don't we, brothers and sisters? We're all aiming for the same thing. We may have different uh, you know, beliefs about certain things, eschatology and so on, but we're all looking forward to heaven. We're looking forward to the fulfillment of the heavenly kingdom here on earth. And when it comes to the main things that we're striving for, we strive together. Families may have disagreements, but hopefully they have that one common purpose to produce that, that flourishing within the family. That is your hope flowing from your vocation because of the Holy Spirit working within you. I need to move on quickly now to the other things that he speaks of in our oneness. One Lord. This is an incredibly important idea. One Lord. Now, we sometimes we think of Lord as kind of a, an honorary title for Jesus, but we forget that it's a, it's a name that implies absolute rulership. It implies ownership, believe it or not. The Lord of the manor, in a real sense, in feudal society, owned the serfs. In Roman and Greek society, the Lord of the household was absolutely over it. He had life or death power over the, main, uh, the members of it. He was the one who owned the lives, not just of the slaves, but of the family. And what Paul is telling us, and this is something that Paul and Peter constantly, this phrase they use. Now, we clean up the text. We take the word douloi and we translate it bondservants in order not to offend people. But you guys are all grown-ups, well, except for the children. Um, <laughs> you understand what word they're avoiding because of all the baggage that comes with it. What's the word they're avoiding? Slaves. Slaves. Paul and Peter lived in a society in the midst of a church that was literally filled with slaves. Two-thirds of the Christian community, they estimate, were literally slaves owned by other people. But Paul says, your identity is a slave of Christ if you're in Christ. He is your Lord. You have one common Lord, one master who sets the agenda for you, who charts the course, who determines what you're going to do, and not a Lord whom you're afraid of, a Lord who you, you cower before, you're afraid you're going to get whipped, but a Lord who, like a good father, 
is constantly looking out for the good of his household and designs everything in their lives for that. But he requires that we submit to his will. Now, a lot of the troubles that children have with their parents is you have a parent, and I'm sorry, kids, this is just the truth, a parent who has more wisdom and experience and who actually does know what's best for them, is trying to set the agenda for their life in keeping with the word of God. And then what happens? The child struggles against it. No! I don't like that! I'm not going to do it! And I go off on my own path. And I end up getting into trouble and getting into trouble and getting into trouble. And then a good parent, what do they do? They chasten their child. From the earliest stage, that rebelliousness that exists within the heart of the child, it just comes out. Don't touch the range. I'm going to. Ow! (laughs) Okay, I don't need to spank you. You spank yourself. But that kind of thing happens. But the Christian does it as well as we rebel against the lordship of God in our lives. What does it produce? If the Lord loves us, if we're truly his children, it produces chastening. He chastens us. And it's a reminder, actually, that we are actually part of his household, part of his body. He's also our Lord. We need to remember this because he purchased us with his precious blood. You were literally purchased at the highest possible cost. A slave might you know, go very dear when they weren't common in Rome, but you were purchased at a greater cost than any human slave was ever purchased by. The cost of your redemption, brothers and sisters, was the blood of the Son of God. His very life given for you. His willingness to interpose himself, to suffer in your place. And so he is our Lord. He rules over us. He should be the one who controls every dimension of your life. Moving on, it also produces, he says, one faith. We all know that there are differences within the Christian community about various minor points. But there should be an essential oneness, an agreement on all of the major doctrines. We should all, for instance, be Trinitarian. I will not count any man who doesn't understand that God is one in person. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Heresy. Uh, (laughs) Yes, thank you. Uh, (laughs) He is one what with three who's. He's, um, He's one God and he subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to understand also, for instance, that Christ, the Son of God, is very God of very God. We need to acknowledge the deity of Christ. We need to acknowledge the the necessity of the solas, that our faith is grounded on Scripture alone, that our faith is what united us to Christ and saves us and so on. These are the, the common things. Again and again in Scripture, Paul stresses the idea that they were obedient to the faith, not to the faiths or a faith but to the common thread that the apostles were teaching. And we can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. That's something we need to understand when there are differences amongst us. There is a truth that the Bible teaches, and we must be striving, as I said in the morning as Bereans, to to unpack that truth, to teach it. And the unity that we have in the faith may not be perfect, but we need to get as close as we can here on earth, knowing that in heaven, then we will have perfect holiness, perfect understanding, perfect faith, but there must be unity within the Christian body on the fundamental doctrines. We must have that one faith. And then we all have one baptism. Now, there is a a wonderful truth here. As 
Um, as somebody was sworn into the, the Roman army, they became uh, fodorati. They, they made their declaration. They made their profession. And they said that Caesar is Lord and that he had life or death power over them. And they were, therefore, they were given the badges of their membership within the military. In the Old Testament, the members of God's covenant community had the sign and seal of circumcision given to them. It showed the lordship of God and their belief in his promises over them. It showed that their, their families were under his headship, that they were all united to the same God and therefore part of the same body. So under this dispensation, the new dispensation, we are bound together in the same kind of covenant community. That's what your baptism does. It marks you out as members of the same covenant household with the same Lord, called to the same aims, infilled by the same spirit. And that is why, for instance, we accept when somebody comes to join our particular congregation, we accept if they have been baptized in a Bible-believing church and using a Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we accept their baptism. Whether it was by immersion, whether it was by sprinkling, whether it was by pouring. Because it's one baptism into the one community. All the baptized make that same profession. Now as children, of course, their parents pledge for them. Looking forward to that day when they will have the reality that the baptism represented in their life. But they're still part of the same covenant community. We don't have time to go into that in depth, but going on to then finally, one God, one Father. There's one Spirit, one Lord, one God, one Father, and the unity of the church is founded on this essential doctrine. And we understand that it is God's purpose to bring us into this eternal relationship with us and that he has been working on this. This is the point that Paul's been making throughout Ephesians, and I hope you see the essential unity. I wish I could do it justice where he's been talking about the whole time God has been seeking to bring together that one body of people made in the image of God, being conformed to the image of his son, brought, adopted. And so we had the father electing, the son redeeming, the spirit applying, indwelling, empowering, uniting, moving us towards that, that perfect oneness patterned on the unity that exists within the Trinity. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Jesus, you remember, prayed that we would have within the church, and would that this was the case here on earth before glory, but he prayed in his high priestly prayer that we would have the same kind of unity that he experienced with the Father and the Spirit. You remember he said in John 17, 21, he prayed that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, and the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. He prays, may they be one, may they be one, may they be one, just as you and I are one. And so it should hurt our hearts when we see disunity within the church, schism, anger, when members of the church hold grudges against one another. May that never be. If you know something is dividing you from someone in the church, resolve it. Even if it means humbling yourself. Even if it means suffering something at their, their hands. It's better to do that than have that schism between the two of you. 
It should be the case that there's a bond of love bringing us together. And I love what Hodge again writes about this unity, this oneness in the church. He says, it is the relation of God to the church of which the whole passage treats. God is father, and he means all of four, one through six. As God, sorry, God as father is over all its members, through them all and in them all. The church is a habitation of God through the spirit. It is his temple in which he dwells and which is pervaded in all its parts by his presence. This is the climax to be filled with God, to be pervaded by his presence and controlled by him is to attain the summit of all created excellence, blessedness and glory. He's talking about things I, I, I have to admit I can barely even understand. I can apprehend them, I can't comprehend them, I can't get to the bottom of the glory, the oneness, all of the things that he's speaking about. It's like the perspective glass in in Pilgrim's Progress by which Christian viewed the heavenly city. He could dimly see it in its outlines. Here on earth, we can only dimly see the outlines of the amazing, wondrous, abundantly, beyond anything we can even imagine or begin to imagine glory that is to come. Let me make one application. There's one particular thing I want to bring home to you. Often it's the case that when you speak of of slaves of Christ and so on, um, and that's what our calling is to be, to be subsumed by him, to submit our will, to be able to say with Christ, not my will, but thine be done, to bow the knee before him and say, you be my Lord, you determine my purpose, you teach me where to go. I'll, I'll go, Lord, when you say go. I'm a man under authority. Let me be yours, body and soul. As you have redeemed me, let me be used as your servant, an unworthy servant, but a servant nonetheless. But you say that often to the natural man. What's their response? No, I don't want to be anybody's slave. Don't you understand that's being the oppressed and the oppressor oppressed dialectic? No, no, no. Stand up, you victims of oppression. And begin singing the international and so on. Because you are determined to be your own master, to plot your own course. I will not bow the knee before anybody, even if it's God. I am no one's slave. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You don't understand it. But everybody in this world is born a slave. I don't care if they're born in a palace or they're born in the gutter. They're born slaves. Slaves to who? Slaves to the devil and sin to do his will. Paul points this out in Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Bob Dylan put it this way. He said, you got to serve somebody. You'll either serve the devil and sin or you'll serve Christ and be slaves of righteousness. The devil's yoke is heavy. 
He's like a human trafficker. He lures you in. You remember in the garden, he said to our parents, you shall be as gods. He told them they would have everything. You can have everything you want, baby. You can have it all. Just come serve me. Like the human trafficker. Then he gets them hooked on drugs and they find themselves in a, in a nightmare world where they're doing somebody else's will and it's always evil and always destroys them. That's what it is to be a slave to sin. But to be a slave of Christ is to be free indeed. I found that out when I was released from the chains that would have dragged me down to hell when I became a believer. And I guarantee you, if you have not yet exchanged the heavy and oppressive yoke of the devil for the light and easy yoke of Christ, do so. Flee to him. To be a slave of Christ is to be free indeed. Let's go before him. God, our Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the oneness, the unity, your intention for us. Although you are our Lord, we are your douloi. Yet, O oh Lord, we are free. We are free in you. Free to do what's right, finally. Free to live the best of all possible lives and to experience the greatest of all possible eternities. If there are still some who are struggling in themselves, who yet will not bow the knee, will not surrender, I pray, Lord, that you would free them from, uh, from that, Lord. Take off those shackles and chains and let them come to you.